Welcome to Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel, with helpful travel tips, news and events, destination profiles, great stories, and expert advice from seasoned and experienced traveling anglers. This is your backstage pass to the world of fishing travel. Waypoints is fueled by adventure and brought to you by Yellow Dog Fly Fishing, a hands-on specialty travel and booking company that delivers the industry's very best insider knowledge, logistical support, and trip preparation. Freshwater or saltwater, international or domestic, Yellow Dog has you covered. And now your host, Yellow Dog founder and director, Jim Klug. Joining me today is Jim Barchi, president and head rod designer for Scott Fly Rods. Just as Scott has become an iconic brand in the fly fishing industry, Jim Barchi has become an iconic name. And with close to 30 years with Scott Rods, he's recognized as one of the most innovative, exceptional, and successful rod designers of all time. But along with building amazing fishing tools and leading one of the most recognized rod companies in our industry, Jim is also a true angler. While some can say that they work in the fly fishing world, others truly live and breathe it. Jimmy is the latter. From his constant pursuit of new species and new destinations, to his commitment to conservation, to his leadership within the fly fishing industry and business community, Jim, as an individual, has had a huge impact on the sport of fly fishing. Jimmy and I have known each other for more years than we probably care to remember, and I'm proud to call him a friend. So welcome to the show, Mr. Barchi, and thanks for being here. Thanks, Jim. That was quite the intro. <laughs> <laughs> well, Happy New Year. It's happy good New to Year to you. Finally have you on Waypoints and the chance to sit down and uh, talk a little bit about what you do and, and your life and uh, your, your decades of wisdom from a life of fly fishing. Wow. You know, I, <laughs> you're right, though. Happy New Year. This is 2020, and... I mean, were we 25 when we met each other? It was more than a few years ago. Yeah, I was going to say, so we got at least a couple decades, if not pushing three. <laughs> well, we started as young men, and now we're sitting here uh, across uh, the, the table from each other. And, you know, we've got a little more gray in our beards and in our, our hair. And, uh, yeah, we're not the, the young guns we, we used to be. But You know, that's actually kind of uh, something we should both be proud of. Um, we've had a lot of good friends come and go in this industry, and... Um, uh, it's a small handful of people uh, that have really had the passion to stick it out and be part of it for, you know, f their whole careers. So, well, it, it's a, a, a good uh, life to have. That's for sure. And, and you're surrounded by good people. It's always been one of my favorites. And, and you are certainly on that short list right there. Thank you. Well, how's the rod business, Jim? Uh, how are things at Scott these days? Good, good. In fact, uh, I think the rod business for m most uh, companies is really good right now. Um, we've had a good uh, number of years in our industry of expansion of, um, you know, increasing participation. Uh, I, I think we're doing a better job as, as an industry welcoming new people and getting them into the sport. I would say that's definitely the case. We're seeing so much more of those efforts really kind of come into fruition over the last couple of years. Uh, what's been going on at Montrose with Scott this this past season? You guys got some exciting things happening? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, we always do. Um, uh, we are as busy as we've ever been. Um, a big part of that is building our new sector fly rods. Um, and uh, uh, that's just put yet another... Uh, 
big push into our overall capacity needs. And um, yeah, it's just keeping, keeping us all super busy and occupied. Well, congrats on that. The sector's had a huge impact these, uh, well, since the show, since it came out, which yeah. is great. Uh, give us a little bit of background for our listeners, Jimmy, on, on Scott Rods and kind of a, a quick history of the company, because it's been around a while. Yeah, it's a, it's actually a really interesting little case study, I guess. Uh, it was founded in 1974 in San Francisco, which at the time was uh, uh, the kind of the epicenter and hub of the fly fishing uh, industry in the U.S. I'd say sort of like Bozeman or Denver would be today. Um, you had the Golden Gate casting ponds. You had... Uh, Oh, these two little Russian boys uh, growing up there casting, uh, who now we all know as Tim and Steve Rajeff, the greatest tournament casters of all time. Um, you know, uh, lots of innovation was going on, not just in terms of, of technique, but um, in terms of equipment. You had Winston, Rods based there. A, a lot of hard goods companies were based there. Um, you know, sort of the what we consider the modern fly shop was born in Northern California, I would say. Um, so a lot of that stuff was going on. Um, and you also, I mean, it was also home to, you know, Krieger and Puyans and so many of these icons of the sport. Exactly, right? Right. So there was a ton of energy and innovation happening there at that time. And Harry Wilson, the founder, was right there in the middle of all that, sucked into all that. And, um, he really started out as a, uh, at the time, fiberglass was the, the predominant material. And his niche and, and sort of his reason for innovating in the industry was he figured out how to make really fine performing, smooth casting, multi-piece, short light line fiberglass rods. And at the time, you know, uh, a typical fly rod was something like a seven and a half foot six weight, right? A lot, a lot of rods like that. But there weren't many seven foot three weights, and there certainly were very few four or five piece seven foot three weights that you could stick in your day pack and hike up into the mountains and go fish the high country with. So that was his little niche when he started. Um, pretty cool uh, place to be. Um, and then it was... I must have been about three years into the project, um, Fenwick, who was the uh, biggest brand in fly rods at the time, uh, came out with the first series of graphite rods, and that was a big deal. Game changer. Game changer. And um, But what was interesting is that they came out with, basically, uh, they used the carbon fiber prepreg in place of the fiberglass prepreg. So they made a bunch of seven and a half foot six weights, um, <laughs> which is, I mean, it, it's great. It's, it, it was a, a big jump over glass, but um, not the most compelling rod. I think Harry's light bulb moment, his kind of aha, brilliant moment was, uh, he said, wow, I think I can take this material and make a long light line rod. And, you know, in his enthusiasm and excitement, went over to the Golden Gate casting ponds and told everyone he was going to build a nine foot four line rod. And they were like, you've been in the sun way too long. Go home, <laughs> sleep it off. <laughs> uh, but he was not to be deterred. And within about a year, uh, 
he introduced the world's first nine foot four line rod to the world. And it was talk about a game changer on Henry's Fork, on Hat Creek in California, on uh, all the Paradise Valley Spring Creeks. I mean, huge difference, right? All of a sudden, fishing, you know, a size 20 spinner on a 12 foot leader that tapered down to 6X was not only possible, but it was making it happen. Yeah, that's right. Well, and a lot of people don't realize that uh, that was where it all really kind of started with uh, with the nine foot rods, especially, I mean, all throughout the West, total game changer. How about your history, Jimmy? You know, you started with Scott as a pretty young man. Uh, How did you first find your way to the company? Uh, And, you know, what kind of led to the opportunities that you have now? Yeah, so um, I was growing up in the Bay Area um, and really into the fly fishing scene. Um, so like you had mentioned, creative sports on Andre Pouillons, he was a great mentor in terms of learning how to tie flies and things like that. Um, not only among me, but other people who are part of that small group I was talking about, um, you know, who are still around. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, Michelac was was running the fly shop Reading uh, and running guide trips, um, which I was lucky enough to uh, be able to guide for their operation. And then Pete Woolley's Fly Fishing Outfitters, um, uh, another early great fly shop. Um, and so I was aware of Scott and I would go down there and bug uh, Harry and, and Larry Kenny, um, his partner, uh, wanting to cast rods, wanting to learn things, wanting to see what's going on and essentially wasting their time. <laughs> Um, and eventually I think, I think the ultimatum was something like, you know, either get a broom and do something useful or get the hell out of here. <laughs> so you picked up the broom. I, so I picked up and the And the rest broom. is history. Yeah, yeah. That's, so, that's amazing. Yeah. And I, that's pretty much this, I mean, you know, so for the last few decades, that's what I've been doing, pushing a broom around the place. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, I, I always um, like to refer to myself as the janitor at Scott. That's right. Because, yeah, I you mean, do it all. A, yeah. If, if something needs to be done, you know, clean up. You, you clean up, <laughs> yeah. you do it all. And uh, when you're in charge, that's inevitably the way it always works. That's fun, too. You wear a lot of hats. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, and, you, oh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, and just a little, uh, one other thing about the company that's really interesting um, is so that's how it got its roots. But, A lot of companies that are around today that started 30, 40, 50 years ago um, have since gone on to do a whole bunch of other things, Uh, acquire other brands, branch out into other product categories. And what I think is really unique about Scott and what I still really excites me is that we do one thing and it's all we've ever done. And as far as I can tell, uh, based on our strategy, I think it's all we're ever going to do. And that's we handcraft fly rods. Well, and, and that brings up a great point. And, and I've been dying to ask you this question because, you know, you've got this marquee brand in Scott um, and you guys have always stuck with that. You know, we only do rods philosophy, uh, whereas, as you just said, so many of your competitors are now making reels and lines and they've got, you know, soft goods and a clothing line and all sorts of random gear. I mean, have you felt the pressure to branch out and, and try to be more things to more people? We certainly have gone through the exercise of, yes, we felt the pressure. And at, at a certain point, we almost went down that path. But through 
you know, vision, commitment, whatever you want to call it, dumb luck, we, we decided we were going to see if we could do what we do well enough to be able to just do that. And as we sort of embarked on that journey and went down that path, we started learning things about it. And it turned out that it made us better. And it turned out that we could just do that. Um, and so, so we learned that along the way. And, and the more we, we learn it, the more it reinforces you know, us doing that. So it's cool. So we're not going to see the uh, Scott like casual leisure wear line or swimsuit line coming out anytime soon. <laughs> no, not, okay. not anytime soon. <laughs> I know our listeners have been dying to get the answer to that. Yeah. We, we might do a, a one piece uh, footsie pajama at some point, but well, I mean, <laughs> why wouldn't you? Right, that's, exactly. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, you know, aside from all that you do with Scott and, and, you know, the amazing work you do in rod design, Jimmy, you also, you know, you travel and you fish and you love it. And you're, you're as passionate about it today as when we first met each other you know, decades ago. Um, and every time we talk, you always seem to have a pretty strong lineup of destinations planned for the, the foreseeable future. You're out there. You're not only building rods, you're putting them to work and you're you're taking them out into the field. You know, Japan, Kamchatka, the Bahamas, New Zealand, you're kind of all over the place. Do you at this point in, in your, your life and your your kind of career as an angler, do you have a preference for salt or freshwater? Is there one direction you're leaning or? No, I, I honestly love it all. Um, I'm just as happy, you know, standing at the parking lot pool on the Gunnison, uh, 20 minutes from the house as I am off on some far flung destination on a flat in some remote place of the world. Um, I really still love it all. And, and I would say I, I try and do that as often as possible. So I'm just as likely to, after work, go spend two hours, uh, you know, looking for a, a riser on the local river as I am planning a, a, you know, a next destination trip. So, um, and, you know, I think for me, at least, my love of fishing and the places it takes me and the people it connects me with it, it has always been a big driver. And it's what's really kept me passionate about the industry. And um, I think, you know, it's made the trade-off of having, not, not that fly fishing is a bad career by any means, but, you know, certainly, um, you know, if you were looking for world domination, um, the fly fishing industry probably isn't, isn't the one you'd pick. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, you know, part of staying engaged with the sport and the places and the people has always fueled my passion for wanting to stay in this industry, you know, so. Well, you know, that's a, a common theme we hear a lot about in this program is, you know, the, the places it takes you, the people that you meet. Um, it, and it is something that I think is appreciated by people that, uh, you know, do make this their path in life. It is one of the things that keeps you going and motivated and excited about being a part of it for sure. Um, now I know these days, 
aside from you know getting out close to your home and fishing the Gunnison on a given afternoon, you also keep a boat in the Keys. And is it are you in Alamorada, Key West, or Key West. Is it in Key West? Yeah. You know, in your opinion, are the Keys still you know the most important or one of the most influential saltwater destinations in the game, or do you think that you know the emergence of other worldwide destinations have changed this over the past couple decades? For me, the Keys are still uh, a mecca that deserve all the respect and and that and all the you know the lore they've built up Uh, is it the best destination is it the one and only no absolutely there's great great fisheries in destinations outside of the u.s that i think are among the finest in the world but i still go back to the keys it's sort of like you know the fork as a dry fly mecca or you know yellowstone park or something there's there's hallowed places in our fly fishing history um you know the catskills you know that that just uh draw us and and they draw the community in and um and having been part of that keys community now for close to 30 years you know it's it's hard for me not to go back um you know and and i also think it is among one of the most challenging fisheries on earth so i always appreciate that too yeah Um, i'm a good analogy to the henry's fork in that way right there right you you work for them yeah um, and everyone counts everyone counts (laughs) and and you know the keys are it's not only you know kind of sacred grounds and hallowed waters and and like you talked about the the history and the lore but it's also full of of just super legit anglers combined with the most off the wall characters you'll find gathered in any <laughs> yes, single place. Exactly. I mean, um, you wonder what, where Carl Hyacin gets his material. And it's like, he just hangs out there and reads the paper. I was right? just going to say, he just reads the newspaper <laughs> and hangs out there. Right. Cause um, yeah, it is all for real. Um, but honestly, when I'm down there, I'm either on the water or or tucked away somewhere. <laughs> Usually, so uh, well, let's get well. Let me ask you this: When people travel to fish, you know, typically with destination angling, uh, you'll spend what can be a substantial amount of money on the trip package. You'll buy your flights. You plan for you know your tips and gratuities, some additional costs. And of course, buying gear is a big part of it. And I would say that for many destination anglers, it seems like the trip itself is only a part of the experience and that buying new gear and new toys is definitely kind of integral to the overall adventure, wouldn't you say? Uh, I, I think so, for sure. I, but I also think that it, it, it's not necessarily just the acquisition of new toys. I think, I think most people, when they're going on a trip like that, whether it's Alaska, the Seychelles, wherever, I mean you're making a pretty big commitment just in terms of not just financially, but in terms of your dreams, right? I mean, you're, you're basically, you put a deposit down on, on your dreams, I think. Um, and so you're like, you're so excited about what could be right. There's no way you want to go show up there without dialed gear. That's the very best you can get, right? Whether it's, you know, your, your, clothing systems, your, your optics, you know, your rod, your reel, the lines. I I can tell you this, I would never get on a plane and fly halfway across the world with old fly lines on my reels, like ever. Well, you you see the great ads. It's like, look, you just traveled 4,000 miles and you're going to fall short in the last hundred feet. 
Yeah, right. I mean, so so you know, I, I think I think there's so much we we hang so much of our, our like I said, our passion and our dreams on these trips. Like like you know, they're so exciting to go on, and so I think the reason we want to go out and get all the best new gear we we can and dial it and we spend so much time on that prep is so that when we get there we're ready set up for success yeah exactly and and it's still you know who knows things may go terribly wrong but at least at least we went in with a fighting chance that's right (laughs) you're you're well armed well let me ask you this and and since again you know a thing or two about fly rods i'll specifically ask you about this um you know i'm going off on a, a saltwater trip let's say for the first time never been before i'm new to the saltwater world I walk into my local fly shop, I really have no idea what I'm looking for in terms of travel rods, what's going to be the best. What advice would you have for someone that's in the market for new travel rods or kind of taking that next step? What are things to think about or look for or questions to ask when you walk into that fly shop? Absolutely. So the first thing, and and I'm glad you said walk into that fly shop because my very first piece of advice is actually connect with a fly shop and preferably a fly shop that knows something about where you're going. And if they haven't been there themselves, they've been places really similar. Um, but definitely connect with the fly shop and, and don't be embarrassed if you don't know a lot. That's what they're there for. Ask them questions. Ask them to give you options and then try them. And if you can do that, or if, if, if you've worked with them and, and you trust them and, and you already know, uh, take their recommendation. But if you're not sure it's someone you haven't worked with before, try stuff out. Buy the very best stuff you can that fits you. And that's, that's the single best piece of advice. Um, if you feel comfortable with the gear and you know you got the best stuff that you could, you're, th- that's a huge step right there. That's a big piece of it. Well, it's not only going to help you perform better when you're actually on location and in the game and trying to make that important cast, but it also gives you that confidence. That It's so much of it. If you feel comfortable, you perform better, right? If, if I mean, that's just in, in any sport or endeavor. The more comfortable you are and the more familiar you are, the better you perform. When um, you're unsure you have questions or you, or, you know, you're just not prepared. You're, it's going to make you perform less than you're capable. Well, and you're going to question yourself. You're lacking right. in confidence and, you know, you're, you're going to stumble. It's inevitable. Yep. Well, you know, continuing to talk specifically about rods, because again, this is what you do and, and what you know very well. We've had conversations in the past where there are some fly rod companies that build rods that, are primarily designed to cast really well. If you're in a controlled environment, if you're at a casting pond at a consumer show, and you know how to, you know, you know the mechanics of a fly rod, this is a, a rod that was really kind of designed to deliver a beautiful loop for anglers that know how to cast, all right? Those are, are great casting tools. Uh, other rods, however, are designed more to fish, and they're, they're more kind of, all right, I'm out in the field, and, and a, a great casting rod, isn't necessarily translating into a great fishing rod. It certainly can, but talk to me a little bit about those differences. Yeah, well, they're actually slightly different disciplines. So uh, 
pure casting, especially with uh, a, a piece of yarn on the end of a leader or something, is it's a it's a great pursuit in its own right. Um, I mean, there's a lot of people who have spent a lot of time perfecting the cast, and I think that's a that's a wonderful part of our sport and part of what defines it. Um, and the better you can learn to cast, I think, the more you enjoy the sport. But fishing is a much different endeavor. There's all kinds of things going on that aren't happening in a controlled casting environment, whether it's uh, the combination of your leader and fly and the weight and size of it or whatever, um, the types of lines you're using, uh, environmental conditions, um, just the... Uh, sometimes pressure or chaos from things happening quickly and unfolding. Um, let's say, you know, those GTs screaming across the flat at you. Uh, a lot of things go into it that aren't there in that controlled environment from adrenaline to uh, other, you know, like I said, your terminal tackle. So um, we have always taken the approach of, for us, uh, a rod is really a practical tool to enhance your fishing experience and success. So our focus has always been on field performance and reliability. Um, of course, that means the rod has to cast well, but but we spend so much time actually vetting these products in the environments they're going to be used in um, and trying to dial in those little things that happen out there uh, that... that if we can figure out on our side in terms of design and production, um, help make that angling experience better. That's well said for sure. And, you know, other conversations we've had in the past, we've talked about how there are, you know, kind of power rods out there that will take someone who's a, a bad caster and allow them to add 10 or 15 feet to what is still a fairly bad cast. And they think, oh my God, this is the greatest rod ever. Look at the distance it's getting me. But it's not necessarily enhancing their casting or their skill or their technique. And it may not be applicable to, as you were just talking about, the conditions that you are going to see in the field. Yeah, because a lot of times, think how many times uh, on a saltwater flat that seems so immense when you think about it abstractly, but get on a skiff or, or weight it and uh, do that on a day when the sun's covered up with, with clouds and you can only see 15, 20 feet in front of you. <laughs> a 90-foot cast not going to do anything for you. <laughs> so there's definitely a lot of situations that are not about pure distance. Um, sometimes pure distance is, is what's needed, but uh, I would say so many more are about being able to respond to the situations that come up because you're not in control of all those. You can try your best, but a lot of it is reactionary or responsive, right? It's our job to see what's happening and then re react to it. Um, and so you really want your equipment to be able to adapt with you. And the only thing that you can count on is that it's going to be unpredictable and constantly changing. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah, that is, that is the one for sure thing. So, well, let me ask you some more specific questions about Scott as a company. You guys make your rods, you produce the blanks, you build and assemble everything here in the U.S. and in Colorado, in fact. Why are you guys still doing this in the States when so many companies have outsourced and they're now having their rods built and, and sourced and assembled in places like Asia? Well, you know, to you, why, why does it matter that these are rods that are built in Montrose, Colorado? Yeah, that's a great question. So it, 
we certainly have a lot of pride in American made, but really the, the true reason we do it is we want the control. Um, we want to be the ones who touch everything. We want to be the ones who know exactly what went into this rod and how. And so like, that's why we put an individual serial number on each one so that we know the day we started it, what materials we had in stock. I mean, we know all that information. Um, and so it's about really our confidence in, in, I mean, certainly there's a lot of good rods made everywhere now. So I think the, the um, argument that, you know, the best rods or the, you know, the only good rods are made in, in the USA is, is a fallacy. I think there's incredible rods that are made everywhere. The reason we do it and the reason we've continued to is that, I, and, and we talked about this in the, in the beginning when, when you were asking some questions, um, we've learned along the way how to be able to do this and do it really effectively and successfully and also not have to, uh, you know, we've structured the business to support the rod making rather than, let's say, the branding. So we don't have to reduce our manufacturing costs so we can put more money into advertising, right? So we, we've structured the business so that we can spend more of our dollars making the rods um, and, and keeping it under our own roof. And that's, that's really why. Well, and these are interesting times in our industry. I mean, it seems that these days there are dozens of new upstart kind of small time rod builders, more than we've seen in a long time. And it's easier for these businesses and these entities to get noticed, you know, with Instagram and social media, the, the barrier to entry for some of these companies has gotten a lot lower. Do you think that these small time players hurt or help your business and, and really big brand fly rod builders in general? I, I, I think that all companies contribute and help the industry. Um, the good ones will survive and will continue to uh, offer something that is significant and that generates demand. And the ones who aren't will go away. Um, and so I, I, I've always been a proponent of uh, the more the merrier. Um, and I think... Uh, it leads to innovation. It, it, it leads to inclusion, which helps just grow the sport and uh, the participation in it. Um, and is I think it's good for all of us. Um, and so I've, I've never been afraid of new entrants uh, into the rod space. You know, I, I think um, if, if you... Uh, let's say you lose your position. Well, you probably did something or didn't do something you should have. Um, so, uh, well, you know, there's, there's room for everybody. Um, and, uh, you know, you remember, I, especially back from some of your early days of, uh, positions you held at other companies. I mean, it used to be really hard to start a rod company. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and then the few that did start up and brought in stuff from China were marginal at best in terms of quality and performance. That's all changed. Um, it's almost, 
it's very hard to buy a bad fly rod today. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Right. Well, a good analogy is like a pair of skis. Yeah. You know, if you can ski, you know, there's so many brands out there, there's different price points, but if you know how to ski, they're going to work for you. Exactly. Some are going to feel better than others. That's right. It's like with a fly rod, but they're all going to perform. And yeah. that didn't used to be the case with fly rods. And it's, it's made skiing better for the consumer and for the sport in, at large. Right. Right. And so I think the same thing for, for fly fishing. Um, it can never be a bad thing to have access to good equipment. That's right. Yeah. Well, and, and that was a really good diplomatic answer, by the way, about, you know, more people are <laughs> better. But, and, and it actually runs into my next question, because not only do you run Sky Rods, but you're also the current board chair of the American Fly Fishing Trade Association, also known as AFTA. And, and for our listeners that aren't familiar with AFTA, AFTA is the sole trade association for the fly fishing industry and effectively the voice of kind of really the business of fly fishing. Um, You've been involved in the organization for years, Jimmy. You, you, I think you were chairman years ago, and they've brought you back in, and, and now you're you're running the board again well, with so, a lot since, of great people. Since you're no longer chairman, someone <laughs> had to be, right? <laughs> well, you know, where do you see the state of the industry right now? You know, we're heading into a new decade. It's 2020. For fly fishing, for the business of fly fishing, do you think things are strong, and is our sport growing right now? So I couldn't be more excited for our industry. Um we definitely have challenges uh, that are significant. However, we've also never been a stronger industry in terms of, uh, again, uh, quality equipment, um, uh, an understanding of you know global fishing destinations, um, a deep, deep commitment to conservation. It's never been stronger. Um, I, I'm seeing more get done in important areas of our of our sport like like conservation work uh like responsible destination travel like companies giving back like new companies coming in uh like welcoming new people uh you know fly fishing 15 20 years ago had a i think fairly legit uh reputation as a bit of a snobby elitist sport, uh, primarily for old guys like us, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's funny that now we're the old guys, right? Yeah. Um, uh, but, you know, it's never been a more welcoming place. It, is there room to improve? Heck yeah. But, um, and do we have a lot of challenges and headwinds on the conservation front? Yes. But, at least from my perspective, and I'd love to hear yours, um, I think we're in a stronger place than we've ever been. And I think we're poised for a next great leap. Well, I, I agree with that. Um, but let me ask you specifically about something we touched on a minute ago about the state of the specialty fly shop and the retailer network in fly fishing. I mean, in a world where everything seems to be now sourced online or available through Amazon that can be delivered the next day, what's the next 10 years look like for the fly shops that are so integral to our sport? Yeah, it, it, it's a really interesting thing. And I think it, it's a tremendous challenge for them. Um, but my my current observation is that while the fly shop network hasn't expanded and may have even contracted a little bit from if you go back 15, 20 years. Yeah, um, I would agree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely contracted a bit. But 
the shops that are there are better than ever. They are performing their role as sort of keepers of the sport and, and um, ambassadors, ambassadors exactly to share the knowledge, to engage people, to teach them, to keep them involved. It's better than I've ever seen it. Um, And I think they're getting smarter. They're responding to those challenges and difficulties by innovating and becoming better. Um, So I'm super encouraged about where specialty retail stands. And I think in fly fishing, it's, it's actually like a great sort of haven in that we're, everyone's so used to impersonal click of a button kind of transactional stuff that when you actually get to go and be part of a community and you get to connect with people and especially about something that you love and that you're passionate about, most people who fly fish, uh, you know, they love it deep down. That's like what they can't wait to go do. And so to be able to connect with that, you know, days when you're not on the river or something, when you're in the city, you know, after work, popping into the fly shop, talking gear, learning something new, it's just a great thing. And, and I think, uh, there's always going to be a place for specialty retail in our industry. Um, you know, and a lot of it too, is we'll see how, how, brands go in in the future. For instance, one of our things, just like we decided we were only going to make fly rods and we were going to make them all ourselves. We also decided at some point along defining what we do is that we were only going to sell them in specialty shops um, because we're big believers in, in that place as a, you know, as an anchor for our sport. Um, And there's other brands who are like us, um, and then there's other ones who have taken a totally different approach and they're all about being all online. And, you know, so I think just like we were talking about with brands and equipment, there's going to be a place for all of that. But the, the good specialty shops are going to survive and thrive. Yeah. And we need it. Yeah. This is a sport that needs it. For yeah, sure. Absolutely. Well, let me change gears a little bit. All right. Uh, one thing we know in life, one certainty. OK. Rods break. All right. Mm-hmm. We also know that tippets snap, waders eventually leak, fly lines crack and fall apart in time. You know, these are realities that as anglers, we, we all know. OK, we all expect this at certain points. But with regard to broken rods, all right, what are, in your opinion, the most common reasons that an angler breaks a rod? And what do you typically see when you get rods that come back? So so the data says that a about 74 to 7 let's just say 75% of rods break in the tip and out of those about 80% break due to some rod tip and object interaction <laughs> so so let, let's just say so car doors yep. ceiling fans yep. uh, screen doors um, tailgates uh Rod, uh, boat, boat racks, um, trees, bushes, walking through things. So, uh, because typically the tip is not only the the finest, most delicate part of the rod, but it's also nine, ten feet away from your hand, and a little bit of hand movement equals a lot of tip movement out at that distance. Um, 
that's just the way it goes down a lot. So being aware of your rod and especially the, the f- end that's furthest away from you um, is one of the great first steps in preventing rod breakage because most of it comes down to that. Actually, very few rods actually just fail on a fish like or casting. And, and if they do, uh, that's... A good chance they were either damaged prior or they might have had a defect. Um, but again, we're talking a teeny percentage um, versus accidental breakage and especially ac- accidental breakage of the tip. Well, I know I've never you know, broken a rod in a ceiling fan in my room rigging gear after a late night session at the bar. That's never happened right. to me. No, you know? exactly. <laughs> I've never stepped on one. No, I've never, never fallen on one. <laughs> Do you, at this yeah. point, you know, all these years of, of building rods, when, when they come back, can you just kind of take it out, look at it and be like, oh, I know what, what happened there. Yeah, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> um, and, and it's interesting too, though, because like I say, I think the vast majority of rods are with some interaction that isn't part of the, what I would call the mechanics of fishing, casting and then uh, pulling on a fish. Um, the vast majority are impact damage from either a heavy fly or hitting a gunnel or a car door or, you know, something like that. Um, and whether they break at that instant or slightly, you know, a short time afterward. Uh, but that, that's what, what we see. And, and I, I think, you know, uh, being aware of that and then also protecting your rods, especially transporting them protected is a huge part of of preventing that that's right well let me ask you about the lifetime warranty for fly rods now give me your honest opinion on how this has changed the game for anglers for retailers and of course for fly rod manufacturers i mean now uh, you know every rod out there pretty much has the guarantee but it didn't used to be that way and and you know has that been good for the industry has it been good for manufacturers what are your opinions on that I, I think it's actually silly. I mean, I don't expect anything I own that if I break, somebody should just give me, fix it for free or give me a new one. Um, so it's a bit of a, um, like you said, it, it developed as a part of our culture. Um, but does it make sense to me? No. Um, do I think it's good for the consumer? Absolutely. Because uh, like you said, fly rods break. And if you've purchased a, you know, expensive fly rod and it breaks, the ability to get it repaired or replaced, depending on the company's policy, um, uh, gives some peace of mind for sure. Um, And I think you asked three things. You said, how do I feel about it? How do consumers feel about it? And how do retailers feel about it? I think retailers hate it. um, And rightly so, because I think they see it as a well, if you can get your rod fixed all the time, why would you go get a new one? Um, uh, I think consumers like it because it gives them peace of mind and uh, sort of an insurance policy. Um, and then, like I said, I think it's uh, I, it's hard to for me to uh, say that it makes sense because, like I say, I don't expect that of anything else in in my life. Um, but as a as a company because it's the reality of how the industry is, we've had to learn how to adapt and deal with it. Um, because if, if we didn't, it would 
probably be catastrophic. Um, so learning how to uh, integrate that into our business model has been very important. And, and, and it can also be a competitive advantage or disadvantage, um, depending on how you play it. So, Well, let me ask you this, Jimmy. So aside from what you guys have developed and are working on at Scott, what gear introductions or new equipment have you seen come out recently, say in the past couple of years, that have been a game changer for the traveling angler? Beyond just fly rods, uh, you know, for our sport, what are some gear introductions or innovations that have made travel and destination angling easier or better for the angler? Uh, I, I, I hate to be so noncommittal, but I actually have to say across the board, I think equipment is better than it's ever been. Whether you're talking about technical clothing, base layers, outer layers, um, you know, wait, I mean, think about wading boots versus what they were 15, 20 years ago. They were, it was like, you were like club footed back then, right? I mean, they were awful. They were uncomfortable. They didn't stick very well. Um, you couldn't feel anything that was going on. They were heavy. Um, and now, now they're, you know, like a climbing shoe or something. They're amazing, right? They, they fit well. They hold you down to the bottom well. So, I mean, I think anywhere you look, um, I mean, reels now are so good. I mean, there's so many nice reels on the market. Um, you know, have we had a, you know, a huge quantum innovation in the last five or 10 years? No, none that I've seen, but the incremental improvements have been absolutely awesome. Whether it's travel luggage, whether, like I say, it's technical clothing for fishing, whether it's rods, reels, um, stuff has gotten really good. Oh, fly lines. Yeah. I mean, look at, look at what we've seen from 10 years ago. Yeah, right. For, for destination and species specific tapers and materials. Absolutely. It's incredible. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so I just think that... Uh, you know, have we seen the next new material for a fly line the way, you know, PVC changed fly lines? Have we seen the next new material for a rod the way graphite did? No, we haven't had those multi-generational sort of quantum jumps, but people's understanding of the materials we do have to work with have gotten to such a refined level that stuff is more dialed than ever. Yeah. And it's fun to use. And and what a world of difference it's made for the destination angler. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, I think about my comfort level fishing all day in the cold and rain now. I mean, there used to be a fairly high level of misery. And there was sort of <laughs> almost a point of honor of like, yeah, I toughed that one out. You know, sort <laughs> of like. Was it fun? Hell no, it wasn't fun. Yeah, exactly. Fun. <laughs> right. And honestly, now, I mean, I can stay completely temperature comfortable, you know, not too hot, not too cold, stay dry. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I can be completely comfortable in really gnarly conditions. Um, same thing out in extreme heat, you know? So, um, and back to, uh, what you were saying, it's like, I can also take a fly line that's going to be supple in the cold or stay, you know, workable in extreme heat and not just coil up on me and become a mess. So all these little things have come together to just make that experience so much better. And also not just better, but more reliable. When you're you know, halfway across the world on you know, six flights away, 
out in the middle of nowhere, it's nice to have your gear work, right? I mean, it's, yeah. And you're not running next door to the fly shop to replace it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so it's important. And, um, yeah. and I really think, like I say, I actually cannot think of a category that has not really improved. Um, especially in the last, you know, if I look back over a decade or so, um, just at the general level of your whole kit is just, it's gotten so so good. Well, and we'll see what the next decade brings, right? Yeah. All right. So with each of these sit downs, I'd like to do a little bit of kind of a lightning round. I'm going to throw some questions at you. We're going to let our listeners get inside the mind of Jimmy Barchi right here. Okay. Get to That's know, frightening. A little, <laughs> <laughs> know a little bit more about you. It is frightening. Buckle in. Never know. Okay. All right. So quick questions here. Favorite species to target on a fly? All. All. Okay. If you can take only... And, and I'm not going to let you get away with a, a non-committal answer on this one. You can only take along one rod for a trout trip in the U.S. West. What length and weight and model are you Radian running? Radian 9'5 weight. Average amount of time it takes to move a rod project from the concept and design phase to actual production. Uh, depends on how well conceived it is and, and whether or not we have access to all the materials we want. But typically, I, I like about two years. If you're not out fishing, you're doing what? Working in fly fishing and hanging out with fam. <laughs> How about another pastime aside from fishing? Oh, I've, I've squandered so much time fishing. Um, I haven't really developed a lot of other ones. I'm kind of juvenile in that way. But I, I, am, uh, I took up guitar a few years back and so I'm kind of a hack uh learning to play guitar um uh I love reading um and I love cooking and eating um that's a big one since uh home time's important um one of the things that I always do at home is uh build family time around meals um and so that's a time when everyone's done with work or school or not busy and we can connect around cooking and eating meals together. So, uh, definitely honed those chops that, so that would be a big one for me. All right. Now this is a question I get all the time that I absolutely hate when people ask me. So of course I'm going to ask you thanks destination at the top of your bucket list. Ooh, I'd like to explore the jungle more. So I would like to get back and do some of that uh, higher trib clear water Dorado fishing, which I have not done. Um, so that would be one. Um, gosh, you know, once I, I've been almost everywhere. So I'm trying to think of a few things I haven't done that I really want to do. Oh, I can tell you one thing. I, I want to go fish the Dean. Um, I've never fished the Dean. I can't believe it. That's like saying, you know, never been to Yellowstone or something, but I haven't. And it's a horrible oversight in my fishing <laughs> uh, life. So um, that will be something I'll do uh, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah, those are two that come to mind right away. All right. I, it must be really hard for you to answer that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's one for you. Hardest line weight for a rod manufacturer rod manufacturer to consistently produce what's a, a, a you know you say okay two through 12 what's the it's your... always the f 
two far ends, always. So, you know, it, it, whether your lowest line weight is a, is a one or an aught or a two, and your heaviest is a 12 or a 13 or whatever, those far extreme ends are the most difficult. There, there's a lot we could say about that statement right there, just in general, the far ends being <laughs> yeah, the most right, difficult. Exactly. We'll leave that alone. Yeah. That's a totally different podcast. <laughs> exactly. All right. Biggest, uh, actually, let me ask you this, the specific Scott Rod, the exact model that you're most proud of after all these years. Wow. Um, I've got to say, well, two of my personal favorite rods right now, and, and I, if I could think of a better rod, I guess I'd make it, would be the Radian 9 foot 5 weight and the Sector 9 foot 7 weight. And those are probably the two rods I use, line weights I use the most. So those would definitely be my, my two right now. Okay, another tough question for you. And you got to get one answer on this. The biggest conservation threat that our industry is facing right now, our sport is facing right now. <laughs> it's a tough question. Well, it is. And I'm trying to think of, I know the answer. I'm trying to think of how to state it succinctly, but it's, it's ourselves bottom line. Um, and our willingness to stand up for these places. So the, if we left them all alone, they'd just be fine. Um, but because we also have to, to coexist with them and also balance them with other needs, it's our will to prioritize their well-being. That is our most significant issue, is can we can get enough people to share that point of view? And if we can, we will succeed. And, and, and I think... Every specific issue that's come up, like if you take a, um, an actual uh, threatened area that was preserved, conserved, um, it's always the same. It's that enough people had the will to save it and protect it. And I think that's going to be the same case, whether we're talking about, uh, you know, Flats environments, rivers, lakes, any of the, the watersheds that, that we depend on uh, to get enjoyment and practice what we love doing, but also that, you know, on a bigger scale, the, the planet depends on. So um, I, think, I think that is our number one conservation issue. Good answer on that one. All right. How about this one? Tenkara. Fly fishing's disco moment and darkest hour or a legit method for chasing fish with a fly? What's your opinion? Well, so to me, Tenkara is definitely has a place. Um, it's, it's a different discipline to me than fly fishing because to me, the single and only defining uh, thing about fly fishing is the fact that you cast a fly line to deliver a fly. Um, so, uh, using a Tenkara rod, um, is, is a different discipline, but I think fine. I'm, I'm all for all kinds of fishing. Um, so I don't actually, I've never really seen it as a conflict to fly fishing, um, or even, and, and if they want to be kind of a little subset in our industry, I have no problem with that. Um, 
but I don't see it uh, again. I don't think it's a um, a question of fly fishing to me. It's just different fishing. There we go. Well, as we wrap things up, one of the big questions that we get all the time at Yellow Dog relates to traveling and flying commercially with rods and reels. And we're mm-hmm. seeing more and more airlines and even countries these days banning rods for carry-ons. And I always find this hilarious, Jimmy, because, you know, I was flying down on the plane today. You know, there's people carrying heavy metal canes and a guy with a guitar and somebody with tennis rackets. And I mean, you name it, right? Everybody's bringing this stuff in. But more and more, we're seeing countries and airlines saying, what's, oh, you have four, you know, saltwater fly rods and you can't bring those on board. Uh, Do you have any advice for the traveling angler when it comes to checking and protecting your valuable rods? And and do you have a favorite kind of travel and packing system when you know you're not going to be allowed to carry it on? Yes. So I have become a huge fan of the large duffels that will accommodate a hard case that holds multiple rods. So it's a bit of a, I I think of it like the turducken, where I take a clothing bag and pack that really efficiently. I take a gear bag with reels and fly boxes and stuff and pack that really efficiently. And then I take... uh, a rod tube and I stick it all in this huge duffel. Right. And so the duffel really isn't my primary piece of luggage. It's my shell to hold all the stuff I want and keep it all together. And, um, that's been successful. I have not either lost it or, um, had anything damaged using those, that technique. And so that's become a go-to for me. Yeah. And, and we're seeing that system, uh, more and more. And, and I would just add, I always put a really good TSA travel lock Absolutely. on that duffel. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Got to have that. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. then I put a spare one in the side pocket because TSA inevitably will not relock it and they'll lose it. Right. Hmm. So when you're coming home, you'll that's have a That's a good one. one. I'm going to incorporate that. I have not <laughs> been carrying a spare, but I, that's a good one. I should. Well, and the turducken is awesome. I think Sims is probably going to steal that and you're going to see the new Sims turducken duffel I, come out. So. I hope they do. Please do. Um, <laughs> and uh, no, it, it is true though, that that system has, I think, become more successful. I would be really uncomfortable checking a, uh, you know, hard rod carrier on its own with a luggage tag yeah. on, on a trip. It says fly fish the world and screams to everyone, hey, there's eight, $800 rods and a bunch of reels in here. And it's you know, exactly the size of a trombone case. Yeah. So. And, um, and, and sort of the, the large uh, duffel thing, it's, you know, it could be filled with anything. So it's, it's nondescript. Great system. Yep. For great sure. system. So, well, last question I have for you, Jimmy, uh, your advice and suggestions, and it can be in one or two sentences or just any thoughts you have on how someone can be a better traveling angler overall these days. Well, a few things, prepare, 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 um, whether it's your gear list, whether it's your research of your destination or whether it's practicing the techniques you'll use most there, definitely prepare. Um, and then my other number one piece of advice is go with an open mind. You never, you never know what you're going to get. You might have awful weather, you know, you might, um, have great weather, whatever. You don't know. The other thing is if you don't, if it's a new destination and you don't know it really well, 
Um, keeping an open mind lets you experience so many more things, um, meeting people, uh, cuisine, culture, whatever it is. Um, so the two things I always try and do is be as well prepared as I possibly can and be as open-minded and flexible as I can, because, uh, like I say, you never know. And, and on, in both ways, it can help you get through tough times, but can also open your eyes to wonderful new stuff. Awesome. Well, good words of wisdom right there. Well, thanks for sitting down with us today, Jimmy. This has been great. Yeah, it's all it's always awesome fun to, to have these conversations. Chat with you, yeah. Right on. Well, that's it for this episode of Waypoints, the podcast that is 100% dedicated to travel, adventure, and exploration. Be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com to plan and research your next fishing trip, sign up for newsletters and new podcasts, and stay up to date on the latest travel news and developments. Join us for our next episode of Waypoints and remember, Life is short, and no one ever regretted a life of adventure. This has been another episode of Waypoints, the podcast of fly fishing travel and adventure angling. Thank you for joining us, and be sure to visit yellowdogflyfishing.com for more trip updates, travel news, expert advice, and adventure profiles. Mm-hmm.